Please pronounce your name correctly for me. Patrick Doherty, D-O-U-G-H-E-R-T-Y. I'm a sculptor. I have a great website at stickwork.net. Just a stupid little thing. I actually build websites and stuff. Why did you buy .net instead of .com? I expect that that was what was available, that somebody else had the stick work. Yeah, fair enough. I know. I, I, my, my name, Matthew Doles. Some other person is named Matthew Doles and bought mattdoles.com for like, and it took me 13 years to buy it back from them because they just kept renewing it but never using it. It sort of drove me nuts that somebody else had my name. <laughs> Anyways, so I'm a huge fan. Actually, I've loved your work for many years, and, and we were talking a little bit before we started recording that uh, when I was living in Wilmington, I actually tried to find a way to commission you to do a project there. So you do these monumental uh, organic sculptures made with sticks, thus the, the name for your website. So my first thing is, is like I was doing some research on you before we started this, and you, you mentioned that you studied primitive building techniques before getting into sort of doing the, the large scale stuff. What did you study? Like Mayans, Aztecs? Like what, what was your thing that helped you sort of get into that? Well, I really think that early on I decided to build my own house. And so there was quite a bit of hunting and gathering with that. You know, you could see in your monitor that I had these big stone walls and all the material was gathered from the, a big hole in my backyard. A lot of the uh, small things that cover my ceilings are just sticks that were gathered out in the woods and then applique in these herringbone patterns. So in a, in a way, of course, we all have been children. So, you know, we kind of have an atavistic connection to primitive building techniques through that as well, because we kind of play out that hunting and gathering style in our childhood. So, you know, I, I uh, of course, uh, old National Geographics are a great place to see how people in the distant past, if you look around the issues around 1900, you can see people actually building fish traps and actually using wattle and daub. And so there's a, initially, I, I didn't know really much about a lot of stick traditions. I just plunged in and started working, but eventually you realize that there are Ikebana traditions of flower arranging that use sticks there. There are basket making techniques, there are furniture making techniques from all over the world. In the Great Depression, there were people that had to make willow furniture and sell it, you know. So I think there's there's just a, a raft of, of building techniques out there. I've just kind of turned all of that making into my own ends and which is to try to maximize the coloration and size of six and combine that with my imagination and try to figure out what I could do that would excite people's imagination and, and cause them to come running. Sure. I mean, I looked into your work and I remember getting your little sort of like sheet of uh, criteria to be able to pull it off, like time frame and, and being able to, and you have, you, at this point you work with very particular, I think it was grapevines is for that. I remember reading that correctly. Maple has been a favorite. 
and that's what we I started out working with. But then as time went on, I learned to use these other materials. I mean, I learned to use gum, sweet gum. And now, because many of the sites that we are working with don't have the energy to gather somewhere locally, then we have also had the opportunity to order willow from a willow farm in upstate New York. So that's kind of filled in our, you know, material needs when we need, when we have to. But, you know, I look for a flexibility in material and coloration. You know, really what you find about sticks is not only do they have the overtones of the woods, but they're lines with which to draw. And so if you think about using a pencil, you usually hit a piece of paper with one way to line and finish off with another, you make tapered lines. And so if you organize those tapers in one direction, you have a sense of momentum or building kind of a line drawing. So a lot of what I try for with these sticks and having various weight lines and various colors is to kind of derive a, a sense of momentum from the surfaces of these works and to build a kind of luxury of line into the surfaces. Well, and you, you do a mix of different sort of styles because I've seen some of your interiors are sort of gestural almost in their sensibility, whereas some of your exteriors are architectural slash sort of colossal vases. Like, so where, do, how do you come up with, like, I guess the first question would be like sort of when you come up with a proposal, are you proposing to them or do people come to you at this point, I guess? Generally, it doesn't do artists that much good to, solicit work, but once you get a reputation, then people solicit you. So mainly over my lifetime of work, generally people have asked me to come and work, but it takes a while to build that kind of momentum. But generally I go to a site for a site visit and I look around. I like the idea of fitting the sculpture to the space and for the sculpture to have a certain amount of resonance with the space that it's in thematically, but also in a, in a way reflects something of the tolerance of the people that are you know, promoting the sculpture. So in various ways, you know, you kind of psych out what's going on in that site and try to think of a sculpture that would, that would fit back into that space well. So that generally happens in the site visit and at the same time, I'm looking for the logistics of how to build a piece. In other words, where would I find the material and who's going to help me? And, you know, all of those practical kinds of things of underground services, if I'm going to drill holes. One of the things that I wondered about, because even when I was trying to help propose one, uh, having one of your pieces in Wilmington, was the, the nature of its being temporary. Because uh, you also you even said like it'll last X amount of years depending on the material you're using and all this. But I wonder about the nature of like just being an artist and intentionally making temporary work. Yeah, that's been interesting for me because I've held that constant throughout my work is that I only do temporary work. Usually you get one great year, one pretty good year. Well, I would say that initially people weren't favorably disposed towards that idea. But as time has gone on, the art world has caught up, or audiences have caught up, and it's seen as perfectly fine to make temporary work that lasts just a short period of time. You know, of course, it apes dance and 
other kinds of temporary exhibitions, you know, where people make something that you have to accept the essence of it at the time and to enjoy it at the time. You know, what I always like about it is that it reinvests the art process and the viewer with what really matters about art. And that is the experience that you have when you see it, you know, that it just bowls you over that it's, that's something that's almost physical. With these pieces, there's a smell. There's also engaging in it physically. You walk into it, you lean out the window, you bump against it. There's a way that it reminds you of childhood play. You know, it reminds of maybe indigenous tribes you've seen, basket making. You know, so there, I always think a good sculpture is one that has lots of personal associations that you have ways or starting points for evaluating the thing, not from something you know art-wise, but just something you feel so inherently in yourself that you just can't help but, but want to go look at it and to experience it. And that's always the edge that I've tried to maintain. It's not about being able to sell it later or that it's accruing value. It's just really about the personal experience that a, that a viewer has with it. So I've always kept that as my mantra. Corollaries to that is that I have an open building site. During the construction of the piece, people are able to walk up and say hello and talk to you. And so that really extends the viewing as well, because, you know, maybe many times uh, you have a gallery opening and people are drinking and that's the last time they see your work. Through the three-week building phase, people come and watch me work. They talk to me about the work. And then, you know, for the time that it's up, it's kind of been bedded in the community and people are interested in coming back and seeing how it, how it's holding up, you know, so and bring their friends. Also, that has included using volunteers. So, uh, you know, it's always hard to hate a sculpture if your neighbors are working on it. So, you know, the, the idea of, of bringing other people into the mix and having them help you is also a way of enlivening ideas about temporary. You brought up two things actually, in that you brought up about like sort of the sense of childhood and play and youth and stuff. And one one thing I actually often like to know about creative people is sort of where did they come from? So like, did were your parents creative? Did you have some great teachers? Like, how did you even get to being a creative person from your youth? That's an interesting question, and it's one that I've asked asked myself, I, I had a grandmother who lived out in Oklahoma who was a farm woman. And yet, for some reason, she would make homes and she would make rock gardens and she did paint, painted and all of these things. And if you ask her why she did that, she said, I, I just feel like it. And then that kind of tradition passed to my mother in a very vague way. And she was always making things around the house and and making little paintings and so forth. And if you asked her why she was doing it, she said, I don't, I don't know, I just feel like it. So I think that somewhere in there that must have triggered my own desires to to make things. And I've always I've always made things. And then of course you follow in your father's footsteps sometimes and not in your mother's. And so I ended up trying to be a hospital and health administration as as my career. But slowly but surely I realized that I I love to make things and I needed to get on a different path. 
So in the early 30, in my early 30s, I went back to the nearest art department, which was UNC and Chapel Hill, and spent two years in there at their art lab and kind of started generating some ideas about who I was and how to deal with materials and the kinds of things that I really wanted to do. So, you know, that had a life of its own once it got started. It was like jumping out of one life and into another. But it, it really worked out for me. And I, I feel like that I was driven to be in the world of ideas and not necessarily in one of just uh, kind of pushing people's lives around. Sure. And your son also now works with you, correct? Uh, that has been great. My son, Sam, he's 26. And when he graduated from college, he decided to to help me. He was a potter by trade and art. He did have history, political science, and he spent all his time in the art lab producing lots of pottery, which I use now in my house. But he signed on and we've been really making a much more grand work since because rather than splitting the load, we did twice as much. So we've been making some really great, great work. And I think work that is as good as anything I've ever made. I think that the addition of his interest and and energy has has really produced a great series of work. Yeah, a lot of people don't uh, work well with family. Like I couldn't work with my brother or my nephew. I guess. Yeah. <laughs> Are you? We started out when he was a little boy. We do projects together all the time. One thing is that we give each other a lot of space. We're able to think together without entering a critical phase, you know, so being able to have an open-ended conversation about something is crucial to being able to work together and to come up and generate ideas. It's been really fabulous for me. We seamlessly work together. He's a really hard worker and we really get a lot done. That sounds amazing. Now, again, also doing a little bit more research on your background, you you said that you said in your little bio that you did you started off doing like works as a small scale sculpture sort of on pedestals and then transitioned to the large scale works that you're now mostly known for how did that process happen because a lot of artists sort of work at a certain scale and sort of jumping to that other bigger scale is quite frightening in many ways quite quite intimidating in many ways as well well the work was was started and was kind of embedded at my time at the University of North Carolina. So it was that we were working in the studio and it, so you start out trying to do something. I made a series of seated figures called Waiting It Out in Maple and they sat on chairs and that's just about as small as anything I've ever gotten. Soon enough, I really think that everyone has a scale at which they feel most comfortable. I think my scale came from a desire to draw, but I'm left-handed. So when I was in grade school, they tried to switch me from using my left to my right. I never felt comfortable with the pencil. And so I think the breakout point was just making things where you could use your whole body to draw. You could throw your entire self against the, against the material and, and bring forth a kind of a giant uh, drawing that seems really comfortable. It seems like I am, I was able to use my whole self to create something. I find that a lot of artists, 
basically the the scale of their work is based on sort of the scale of their studio. So if your studio is yeah. big, you work big. If your studio is small, you work small kind of thing. I think that's true. It's your comfort zone. You know, I felt very uncomfortable and self-conscious holding a pencil. And I felt so unselfconscious and so fully aware at a bigger scale that I just, it just seems like easy as anything you've ever done. You know, it's just, there's no stress with it. If there's a level of endorphins flowing, they start at a larger scale for me. I mean, the idea of making works at the colossal size that you make them sounds like, like basically every child's like Lincoln logs and Legos gone like massive. It, it's fun to try to, to fill up. I mean, let's just back up and say that there are plenty of options for building sculptures if, if you were able to fill a certain kind of space. And could you do it quickly? So one thing about working with sticks is that they come to it comes together very fast. So within a three week period, you're able to produce a large scale work that's credible and you're able to do it within a good set period of time. And for the people who sponsor you, that's incredibly important. They need something that's going to count in their space, going to be something that's popular, something that seems finished as an object. And it's got to be conceivable that you could think of it and build it within a certain period of time. You can't lagger along and say, oh, I'll come back and finish it later. Something it has got to be done within a set period of time. So from an artist's point of view, this allows you to continue to make work constantly. You don't have anything waiting to be finished. Everything's got to be finished within its three-week segment. So uh, develop a kind of a style of building things that will fit within that with at that time frame. So how do you fund these projects? I mean, cause I'm always interested in the money side, you know, but get a bunch of bankers together. They talk about art, get a bunch of artists together. They talk about money. So like, you know, Christo sells prints in order to fund his self fund his own projects. Are you, are all of your projects funded by sort of sponsors or institutions or like, how do you go about sort of manifesting these things? That's right. The issue is, trying to find sponsors who have, who you could use their goodwill and their power in the community to get the material or get the money, the funding that would support the work. And that's always been the way that my work has, has proceeded. And initially I had sponsors and I didn't have that much money. So I worked for less, but as time has gone on, my sponsorship has increased massively. And so the value of my work has increased. I've charged more to do it. You know, the sponsors that I have, they go back to the community and they're asking in various pots of money. The National Endowment has provided quite a bit of support for the for these pieces. State organizations has provided, you know, now banks and the community provided or individual foundations. So generally, I work for museums, I work for art centers, I work for botanic gardens. They've had an increasing interest in art and have provided a new world for sculptors to come and work in botanic gardens, do a lot of private commissions as well. So all in all, each sponsor that we have uh, has to come up with the money for an artist fee plus expenses. So that's how I work, artist fee plus expenses. 
Now, you mentioned the National Endowment for the Arts and all the, and you also got a Pollock Krasner Foundation grant as well. Like I am fascinated with those because that's all the the paperwork. That's the the administrative stuff that most of us creative people hate to do, but admittedly you seem to do it really well because you are you are continually working, continually getting these sort of grants and and uh, support of all these different institutions and so on. So like how do you balance that sort of bureaucracy and paperwork with the creative side? Well, I have to say that I had an administrative background. So, it's true. you know, yeah, yeah. It, it doesn't mean that I'm good at it. It's just that I'm not afraid. Yeah, maybe I'm just afraid of it. Yeah. The individual grants like getting a national endowment and President Pollock and some of these other grants are were based on just uh, applying and winning a place in those, you know, in those grants. The grants and so forth that are are funneled through organizations the organizations have to apply for and they take care of really the meat of trying to fundraise and i'm out of that side of it i have a uh, office assistant dorothy and she does an enormous amount of, of paperwork for me in other words we we have to write contracts for the various sites things that we do and we have lots of paperwork but somehow or the other we manage to make it go within our our schedule i make 10 works a year and i'm three weeks of every month i'm away building the work the other two months you have to make site visits for all the sites for for the upcoming 10. so you know i'm i'm really never home i've spent the last 30 years on the road almost it's been a lot of a lot of different kinds of beds a lot of rental cars and meeting lots of people but it sounds like a very colorful life. We certainly have lots of experiences, you know, and particularly able to work in Australia and Japan and uh, Korea, a lot in Europe and Mexico and Canada and lots throughout the United States. So each one of those, you meet new friends, you have a lot of great experiences, you're using volunteers from those places. So you have an interface with the community. We always have to go find material, which means you have to be soliciting a cup of sugar from this person and that to try to find what you need. And so that throws you further into all kinds of situations that make good stories. Sure. So so your assistant does a lot of your sort of paperwork and stuff for you. That's very nice. I want an assistant. <laughs> you really do. It makes a huge amount of difference. Oftentimes too, having two people means that you can sequence your request to people. You don't have to bug them personally because someone else can do it for you. And that, that really helps uh, relieve a lot of tension. When you show up for a, a, a job or gosh, like, I want to go back to like the beginning of the whole thing. So like, how does it even, how do you start? So like, let's say somebody approaches you and says, we want a project. Like, so do you have to propose a bunch of different ideas? So like, do you have to say, here are three sketches or here are five sketches? Or do they just say like, we just want you to do something and we trust you? It always is that we want you to do something and we trust you. And what you say is, look at my past work. You'll be happy. You know? Yeah. And so it doesn't just appear out of the side of your head. You, you work with the institution, you work with whoever's there and 
you talk to them about their expectations. You find out something about their public. Before you actually begin with your idea, you discuss it with them. But generally, they say, hey, that, that sounds like a good idea. We just want it to be good. So that puts it back on you to do something exciting and something that's provocative, something that will appeal to their audience. You know, So there's a little bit of magic in that. Generally, we come up with an idea, then we lay that footprint of that idea out on the ground. And then if the piece has got to stand independent, if it's not going to be entangled in trees or lean on a building or something like that, then we have to drill holes in the ground and we'll set some bigger sticks in there. They're big, they're like baby trees, really. And we'll set a scaffolding system around that configuration and then we'll start pulling the shape of the ultimate sculpture. So if it's going to lean way over, we pull all those uprights into a leaning position. We'll tie those to our scaffolding and we'll build a kind of matrix. And then we'll go in and we'll substantiate that matrix with a kind of structural weave. Once the shape is held, then we can cut it loose and it will hold the shape that it's in. And then comes the drawing phase where you're applicating a look onto the surface of the, the work. It's kind of an independent phase. It's like it's like building a canvas and then drawing on it. So you, you're drawing on the surface. And then there's the cosmetic phase in which it's erasing. So a good drawing, you always go back and erase the things you don't like in it and reassert line. And so that's the way that this functions is at the end, you go back and you put little sticks over things that irritate you and it kind of erases them. Then you can reassert a line here or there to build a what is a coherent look on the surface, a consistency. So that's going to start to finish. Well, I, I'm thinking about like all the work that I make and like, you know, uh, 50, 60% of the stuff that I make isn't my best work, but you're in a very different situation because li like literally every piece you do must work and be great. You can't screw up one of these things. You can't be like, well, that shape didn't work. Let's just try something else. Like you, you're under a time limit, a budget, or all this kind of stuff. So like, how do you deal with the pressure of like every project has to be successful? Well, I, I think a this is a, a crucial question for artists is how to take the pressure off of yourself so that you can do your best. If people are, we have that with our volunteers, for example, when people are feeling self-conscious, they do their worst work. So, you know, the idea is to try to find an unselfconscious place to work so that you feel completely and utterly yourself. For some reason, being submerged with people around you who are trying to help you, having my son there, having a kind of welcome from the institution you're working for, it's very upbeat, very positive. And what you did try to do is to say, I'm going to do my best. And once I do my best, that's going to be good enough. I'm doing my best. And so for some reason, that just takes the pressure off. And I, I don't feel like that I'm under the gun at all. And sometimes we work down to two hours before the opening. And people say, well, aren't you going to be finished? I said, well, when's the opening anyway? Two hours from now, you know, or it's three hours from now. So, you know, we know how to finish up. And 
part of that is knowing how to stop. So, you know, people overwork their drawings, they overwork their sculptures, they don't know when to stop. And so there's a way that on our last couple of days, my son Sam and I, we practice how to stop. In other words, what we'll do is we'll set the priorities of what really, what's the most crucial things that need to get finished in order to bring up the illusion. So the last day we say we're gonna get 5%. We're gonna make a 5% difference, let's do it. Being able to go in there to do the worst of the work or the, the meat of the work, then do some refining. So just like metal work will tell you that a polish is nothing but a series of finer and finer scratches. So once you've scratched down to a point, you're making 100% effort, more effort would make only 2% better results. So that's not really worth it, you know? So you have to figure out how to prioritize the last bit so that you can walk away from it the minute that you know that it's done. Have you ever had a situation where either the client or you was unhappy with the results? I don't really think so. It seems amazing, but everyone's always been happy. And if you call anyone I've ever worked for, they're totally enthusiastic about the way the work proceeded during the building phase, as well as the effect on the public. So, you know, I always keep in mind how the piece has got to function. It doesn't function primarily for the organizations that hire you. It has to function for their public. How will it, how will it play? with the public that it's directed to. And you know, there are a lot of different publics and sometimes a private situation turns into a public situation as time goes on because uh, folks want a great deal of publicity about a work as it turns out good. So, you know, we, we kind of have a changing landscape escape in that, in that regard. Well, okay, and it's funny, that was gonna be my next thing I wanted to talk about, which is, your work is temporary and site specific, which is another sort of unique thing to your work as well. And the, I feel like you sort of came at the right generation, let's say, or the right time period for this kind of work with social media and, and all this kind of stuff, because now people from all over the world can watch people walk through your projects or see images of them on social medias and things like this. Like how much do you engage in that process? You know, I usually lease social media to social media because we don't, we don't have the time. We maintain our website, but we don't have time to be on these social media channels. Sometimes we're championed by others. People will try to see as many of the works as they can. We have people contact us and say, where's the next place we can go? You know, people contact us because they want to help us on a particular place or not. But, you know, we just can ride the wave. And we also ride the interest of the organization because they usually have their media mavens out there working. You know, they want publicity. They want the public to come. So we've been able to ride on top of that that wave. It's, it's not gratuitous. We want people to look at these pieces. We want people to enjoy the work and uh, to feel the, the joy that we feel when we build them. You know, it's, it's a very positive thing throughout, not only 
do we feel good about building it and we like using all the people that come and help us, but the public seems to be madly interested in these works. So, you know, it's, it's been a win. I envy you not having to do social media. That's quite nice. I'm not a fan of doing too much social media personally. We've just been the willing recipient, I would say. Very lucky. And, uh, you, if you look on the web, you can find plenty of imagery and people share it back and forth and other pictures get up there of people walking and using the work. Well, I mean, that that's the thing is, is, you know, what, 30 years ago when you started? Is that about right? 30 right. years? Yeah. Yeah, about 30 years ago when you started, <laughs> this kind of stuff didn't exist. And like for people to see works that were site-specific, they would have to buy postcards or a book or something like this. But now there's this great world that has opened up that makes it so that exponentially more people can experience your work than could have 30 years ago. It's really true, and it, it's been a massive help in terms of generally all my contacts are made through the internet. I mean, we have a website, people write us, they do their initial valuation by looking at other work. By the time people get around to contacting us, they're pretty convinced that they would want to explore having a work at their institution. So, you know, it's been, it's been a gift. Do you ever make small works these days? Well, I don't have any time. I work 100%. You know, I'm gone all the time. Uh, I'm home for one week a month. You have to catch up and do your your own personal work then. And we work, I work in the office during my week off with Dorothy, my assistant. It's a very full life and one I love. It sounds fabulous, yeah. I'm most interested in sort of the nature of site-specific and temporary because, you know, a lot of artists... Well, I shouldn't say a lot of artists because, you know, there were movements in certain time periods, the earthworks and things like this. You know, I'm sure you get compared with, uh, oh gosh, what's it, Andy Goldsworthy and that that whole gang of, of people doing those kinds of pieces as well. Like, do you, do you know any of those people? Oh, yeah. You know, you know meet different, different people, you know, Richard Long and uh, Chris Drury and, you know, uh, David Nash and, Andy Goldsworthy. Yeah. You all have like a poker night? You all hang out or anything? You would think so. You know, for years ago in the 90s, there was a lot of interest in Europe. People were having, they were calling it land art, and they had big symposiums. And so, you, you know, they would invite everybody that was kind of interested in working with Willow or working in the land or something. That, that same thing didn't really catch on so much in the United States, certainly not using that moniker. And still there's some, some remnants of that movement in Italy and various other places, uh, usually connected around a sculpture park like Articella or some of these other places. I'm not sure in terms of its, its longevity. People have moved their interest in environment into multimedia video and, and so forth and i don't know that that many stick workers out there closest i know to you would be andy goldsworthy yeah and he's kind of continued to move to more permanent work as well you know his walking and arches stone. yeah stones yeah he's great he's done some great work have you ever thought about some ways to try to create 
your works in a more permanent nature? I mean, I know some of them are indoors, so that could be pretty close to permanent. Well, you know, there's always that business model of people climbing to their their level of incompetence, you know, by being booting up higher and higher until you finally, you know, are beyond your capacities. I I think it's it's great to explore within one vein and try to do more and more with it to try to find new ideas. You know, we've used up all the easy ones, all their easy shapes, you know, um, there, there are only so many shapes in the world. Yes. And, and, and every, every year come up with new, new ideas, new ways of working mainly because I'm thinking about site specific. I'm thinking about the environment in which the pieces and the shapes of the bushes nearby the uh, steeple top of the tower next door, the way that people flood in and out. In other words, often you can abstract some kinds of ideas from a site and, and think of them in their most rudimentary vein. People walking is flow. People doing this is this. You know, there's growth patterns. There's all, all kinds of ways of when we worked in Falmouth, I was looking at a Florida Lee, you know, and then all of a sudden I uh, thought, oh, well, maybe I could abstract even that into kind of a, a simple branch that I might pick up off the ground. And then we laid that branch out on the ground and started working our walls in similar ways. So we made this very beautiful, very large sculpture, but it started out as kind of a simple idea of seeing some quarterly on a page of a book in their library and then carrying that into the garden and then carrying that into a design and then carrying that to fruition. So, you know, to ways to develop ideas or is kind of abstract things and to try to look at their essence and then pull forward some kind of physical object from that and not be too afraid of it. Just let that explore what that would mean Sometimes it's a, a word. Somebody will say something to me and I'll say, I wonder what that word would mean if it was three-dimensionalized. I wonder how that would work. I wonder how I would build such a word. You know, kind of going from one kind of level of association to another to try to discover something. You mentioned that you're left-handed. So, like, do you always sort of have the, the the weave going in one direction or like do you like clockwise versus counterclockwise or like is it site specific or do you have like a personal thing that you believe sort of going to the right is more comfortable for you versus going to the left kind of thing yeah i do my son works in one direction i work in the other is he right-handed he's right-handed and i can work the other way but it it feels i'm at odds with it I can work in any direction, but I just tend to work in one way, you know, in terms of a way I circumambulate something and work. I do three-dimensionalize things in my mind. I, I see things in three dimension pretty much, you know. And so when I think about things, I, I find myself moving things around in my mind to get the structural bits in the right place and how that would work with everything else. Do you have a dream project you would want to do? So devoid of funding, devoid of somebody coming to you. So like, you know, let's say you just have a dream of like wrapping the Eiffel Tower or, or doing or the pyramid at the Louvre or something like this. Like, do you have some project that you're like, God, I wish I could do that. 
Well, we had a thematic. The very first project I ever made was called From Hedges to Hirshhorn. I've made the hedges, but I haven't made the Hirshhorn. So I'm willing for them to call me at any time. I'm ready to bring all the sticks in North Carolina up there. We're going to make something good. I love it. I grew up in Washington, D.C. I love the Hirshhorn. <laughs> yeah, that would be great. So what, what would you do? Because, I mean, I know they have their outdoor garden, but you would probably want to use the building itself, right? Uh, that's right. All we just, all we need is the these artists that have come and filled the entire building meant that they just had a lot of helpers. So if you're Ai Weiwei, you, you can fill the building. They just need to call me. I can get some sticks up there. I would imagine the Hirshhorn or the Guggenheim would be perfectly sort of symbolically appropriate for your work with the natural curves and everything. That's exactly right. Early on, you mentioned about the the look of the branches and the sort of the colors and the, all the textures and all this kind of stuff. Do you treat the the, the works in any way, so a, a polyurethane, a whatever, over it at the end to sort of maybe bring out some tones in them, or do you leave it always leave it natural? Generally, we treat things with fire retardants because uh, a lot of times we're in sensitive situations, but have not really developed coatings. They tend to make things look wet, and they actually uh, tend to kill the look of the overtones of, of coloration, you know. So if there's various gray tones, like if you're using maple, you have grays and purples and reds. If you put some kind of wash or something on there, some kind of a finish, then you, you know, you just get one tone. So, you know, we just, I accept that this is temporary work. It's work that tends to degrade over time. People tend to take them down at the two-year mark because at that point they still look good. The person that walks up to the site two years later, they don't know the progression of the piece. They don't know how it looked before. So you want to still be aware of, of the public and, and their sensibilities. If it's a private commission, you know, you can leave it until the cow come home. It really wouldn't matter, but... In public, which is generally the places these works set, you know, you have to be conscientious. Okay. I've always had a question. I, keep in mind, I'm not a sculptor. I, I come from photography and I generally work sort of two-dimensionally and all this. When it comes to doing outside stuff like this, what about insurance? I've always wondered, like, how is that dealt with? Who deals with it? How do you even insure or do you insure these things? Or So in, in 1980, when I started working, nobody even thought about insurance. I mean, one, there were, there were no risk managers. They all came after 9-11. Oh. And it was a new situation. You went to a museum to work. They didn't know whether you were uh, part of the wait staff or whether you were a sculptor. They didn't know whether they'd invite you to their house or tell you to come back later. You know, it was a much more no holes barred situation. People were interested in installation and they just embraced it fully. As time went on, it became more stylized. People knew about installations. They tried to figure out how they were supposed to act towards you. They acted that way. Along with this came awareness of liability. And so anybody that works in public has to have liability insurance. If you're an English artist, you can belong to a society, I guess backed by the government or somebody, they, you get 
you get fully covered. If you're an American artist working in England, now you can hardly afford to work there because you can't afford the liability of it. You know, it's like, you know, $50,000 or so, you know. Of course, there are people that will just sidestep that and you get to go work and nobody says anything to you. But when it gets formalized, it's very expensive to work there. It, the institutions pay this liability insurance, not you. They can or they, they can try to shift it onto the artist. It just depends on who you're working for. And so, you know, you can't afford unless the institution will pay for it. You can't afford to pay for it. But in the United States, all organizations that I work for generally have liability insurance. If they're having volunteers come and work uh, in the garden or at the museum, they're, they're covering those people. They're covering the public. If somebody trips on their sidewalk, they're covering the public. So, you know, I always say, if you think that this sculpture is going to be an additional liability, then you need to cover your end of it. We, we carry liability insurance for ourselves and for Sam in case we would drop something on somebody that we could cover. Always the institution is going to be required to do more than you because it's their place, you know, and you have limited liability. We do whatever we can. I'm a corporation as well to try to limit some of the liability. Mm -hmm. And so I wasn't that way for a really long time. But as, as time goes on, not that people are more litigious, but there's the impression that they will be. You know, that, that plays itself out. Places like Ireland, I'm prejudiced about saying this, but it seems like in Ireland, it's a much more litigious society. And, and so there's a lot of one person suing another. This is just happenstance looking at it, but that's what it seems like to me, that there are places that are more or less litigious. You know, we've never had any situation develop over the 30 years where anyone was hurt because of the piece or because of the installation. We're incredibly careful about safety. We do use scaffold. We have people on scaffolding. We've become a little bit more circumspect in the last couple of years because the sites we're working for, like universities, if you're working for uh, one university, they may have... Uh, all the students climbing trees and on ropes throughout the quad or the next university might say, even our football players can't go up more than one foot off the ground. That's our rule here. So you just don't know what you, what different situations you stumble in. They're incredibly different from one institution to another. I would imagine OSHA possibly even gets involved in some of these things too, right? Like five point harnesses and the whole thing. You would think so. We've not been plagued too much with that because we make a big effort to be safe and we don't have a, a big presence generally. We have a limited amount of scaffolding and limited number of ladders. And so it's not like a university building that is putting, you know, a number of people, the workers in danger and also, you know, the university at more risk. So we, we've kind of backed into it, but we have a style for working that's been pretty productive and uh, we cover our basis with having liability insurance and people that work for us have liability insurance and the institutions we work for have to cover their own liability. Right. Now, moving on to sort of a different topic, like, have you ever done any workshops or, or any teaching? Yeah, occasionally uh, get roped into 
doing something or the other. I've worked at Anderson Ranch a few times and and Snowmass and at Penland a few times doing different kinds of situations. And sometimes, you know, an organization, they just can't help it. We have to do a workshop while I'm there or, you know, sometimes we'll have a corresponding kids project take place at the same time as my project. We worked at the Montreal Botanic Garden and we went ahead of our normal schedule and made a, a, a huge framework for the public to work on for the summer. And so it was very elaborate. And so people came from town and worked on their own sculpture for the, for the summer. It was really very, really very much fun. Cool. Yeah. That'd be fun to take a course at Anderson ranch with you. Well, we'll get you going. Come on. Oh, I love the Anderson ranch. I actually already, I interviewed a, or interviewed, I had another podcast episode with another professor from Anderson ranch as well. Oh uh, yeah. They're great. Yeah. Allegheny meadows, uh, does pottery. Great. Oh, yeah. Great guy. So, so chill. Very nice. Something I, I wondered about, and I wondered about this from way back when, when I first contacted you, what, 10, 12 years ago, when you're sourcing your sticks, do you try to source them regionally and e and then even within the regional, like how do you sort of make the, the, the exacting final choice of like which sticks to work with versus some other ones that might be available? You know, we would, we end up making a site visit and during the site visit, we oftentimes have excursions into the woods. You know, if it's in Holland, we might go out on the dikes and look, you know, take these little bridges and throw them out over the, over these waterways and get out there and find whether we could get some willow or not. If it's somewhere in North Carolina, we might be looking for maple. If it's in South Carolina, Georgia, we might be looking for sweet gum. Out in the Midwest, we might be looking for elm or a kind of a rough leaf dogwood. Right. But the sticks that you use, I mean, it's not like you can walk into a store and be like, hey, I want to use this. I want to buy these. You know, like you can't walk into Home Depot and get what you use for your project. So, like, how do you even find a, a supplier that offers these kinds of particular sticks? Well, you know, it's not suppliers. What it is is a, is a vacant lot behind a factory somewhere or um, somebody's lakefront or an old ditch bank or we were working in France and we found a sewage treatment plant that had, they were dumping their gray water out into willow patches in order to process it. And, you know, it might be behind the high school stadium or over by the sewage treatment plant or down by the water plant or over by the power plant or, you know, so in Sheboygan, Wisconsin, we gathered by the regional power plant. You know, sometimes it's transmission lines that have a lot of saplings under them. So we'd look around, uh, sometimes contact the county forester or maybe the agricultural extension agent. You know, sometimes we talk to developers. Sometimes we find a piece of property that, you know, that in the hands of a lawyer that, you know, is working for the family. And we ask if we could get, get saplings. Uh, Indianapolis, there was a big box store that went down and so their property just became a big pile of sticks and so we were able to get permission and and go gather so each place we gathered wildly in different places of course you 
find out that sometimes the person who gives you the sticks doesn't own them. So we've had a few times where people who were renting didn't like their landlord that much. And they said, oh, sure, no problem. Just go ahead at it. And then only to have the landlord appear and say, what are you doing cutting sticks on my property? You know, of course, in North Carolina, we've used the highway department as given us permission. In Michigan, one time, we were able to gather along the interstate because uh, there is a forester that takes care of the sides of the interstate. And somebody knew who it was. And so we were able to get permissions, put out cones for two miles ahead of our truck, you know, and be on the edge of the interstate gathering sticks. So every conceivable way of getting material we've I've explored. That's a, so, so you don't say for some reason in my mind, when I thought about your work, I just sort of assumed you paid somebody else to go get it for you or, or like you, you were buying like the offshoots from some woodworking companies or something like that. But like you actually go out and sort of seek out, sort of try and figure out that regional special wood and then try and actually cut it yourself with you. And I assume your volunteers and, and get it. Uh, yourself. Yes, we get volunteers. And sometimes we'll get a landscape company to send a couple of workers and they'll do the cutting and my volunteers will do the bundling. Unfortunately, Sam and I do a lot of stick cutting. Or fortunately, maybe you like doing it. I don't know. <laughs> well, you know what you're getting then, you know, because there are some peculiarities. And as you go through the woods, you understand which things bend and which don't. And generally, the impact is very low. We're usually gathering in some place where maintenance crews are continuing to try to keep this material down, or there's about to be development or some other crisis that's where the sticks are about to be removed, and we're kind of coming in and using them. Generally, uh, developed forests don't have any sticks in them. They're all in the upper branches. So you have to look for places that have been disturbed like along rivers, it might be a big flood has taken out a lot of the smaller trees and then these saplings are growing back or farm infiltration in fields that are no longer going to be farmed. Montana and Wyoming, it's often along rivers because the land might be arid other places and we might be allowed to gather somebody's lake bed that's looking to restore their lake because the willows got in there and they're taking over all the water. Okay, and with it, wait, within that though, so like the the sticks you're working with, are they fresh or are they old? Are they dried or still, you know, still alive? They have to be flexible. So they have to be green and flexible. And we can, in the winter time, we can use them for quite a long time because it's cold in the summer, you get about three weeks of flexibility. But we worked in Sweden and we were able to get our material from a farm that that uh, grows willow and paints it for these sticks that go in the snow to tell how deep the snow is along the road. In Australia, we got at a cricket bat farm where they grow willow for cricket bats. You know, so, uh, you know, every place you go, you try to explore who might have some sticks or where you could get them. And, you have to factor in your sponsor's sensibility as whether they've got the energy for it. So sometimes we've been buying some sticks. As people get tired of us gathering, we have a few sites that every year that just would prefer to get them from a willow farm. 
it's funny. Like in my mind, I'm thinking you have like barns and barns of of wood sort of waiting to be used. But no, you literally just sort of harvest it as your projects arise. That's exactly right. And it's a little bit harrowing because, you know, you, you, I mean, how many sticks do you need? Well, you gather as many as you can stand to. You know, it's an it's a unknown quantity until you say, I think we've got enough. And then we try to use those sticks well. Yeah, I would. Yeah, I could imagine like basically like you, you go out and you harvest as much as you think you need, but then you get back and either you overcut or you undercut and you either have too much or too little. Like Usually we wear our sponsors out and they're willing to cut a whole lot less than we are. So sometimes we'll say, okay, two days, that's, we'll start working. And then we know that it takes three days of gathering uh, with the crew to get enough material. So a lot of times that last day, is when they know that we have to finish. So they'll say, okay, I guess we could go back out. So there's strategy in the gathering as well. Yeah, you even have to like consider, well, and I mean, another thing that we haven't even talked about with your stuff is is the nature of, it's outdoor, it's temporary, it's using natural resources, and you have to fight with the elements as well. So like, I mean, if you show up and it happens to be a rainstorm for a week, like, you know, you have to deal with the working outdoors that's exactly right when we worked in uh in ireland in november and it never got above 41 but didn't didn't freeze either and so you know you're just plain cold sometimes it you know things you wouldn't realize they're pests of of various sorts you know no seams in south carolina that bite you the entire time you're working wasp and gathering snakes alligators uh, you know, we're out there in the swamp and we've been there in the winter and there's no alligators. And then in the summer, there are alligators and there's rock water moccasins and there's copperheads and rattlesnakes and bats and uh, rabid, rabid foxes. And nobody's gotten, I would imagine you're also not uh, allergic to like poison oak or poison ivy or any of these kinds of things either. I, I'm not allergic to them. And sometimes, you know, we've gathered in Kansas where the poison ivy grows taller than your head. And, you know, you're just like everybody's using tech new. I personally don't get it, but my son does. That he, there are some products that you can wipe on your skin and it prevents you from getting it. And so by the gallon. I'm sure. Yeah, we're, we're subject to the weather. Sometimes it rains the whole time. Sometimes uh, we were working in Montana and... Uh, the Forest Service had pity on us. They brought us one of these tents that has a, a firebox in it because we got we got caught in September and it went from 91 degrees to 15 degrees in one day. And then we had to finish up, you know. So <clears throat> we're subject to a lot of a lot of temperature shifts and worked another time in Montana and we were working at 9,000 feet at a ski resort and the wind is blowing pretty significantly the entire time. And so, you know, you know, you have to build for the site that you're placing something. It's going to have high winds. It's going to have heavy rains, you know, whatever. It's going to have a lot of ice. You have to build accordingly so the piece can take the pressure of the site. And also, you know, we have to build in every kind of weather. Sometimes we're really hot. All right. Do you have any future projects coming up that you'd like to sort of promote or talk about? We're working at Biltmore House in Asheville. In March, uh, and I've got projects throughout the whole year. You know, we, we've been uh, stalled out a little bit by 
the COVID and we've been rescheduling 22 for many of those people. Now I think we've finalized our situation. People can look on my website to see our upcoming sites where we're working. Maybe a few of those will still change. We have no idea what's happening with, uh, will we be allowed to fly from New York, from North Carolina to New York without quarantining? Could we fly from North Carolina to Massachusetts without quarantining? We're, we're in a in a very dynamic situation at the moment. And so that affects all sculptors, that affects all working people, and it affects our future sites. You know, we are making site visits through the month of September to various places around the United States. And so that's in anticipation of working all next year, every month, somewhere. Of course, we invite your listeners to come out and see what we're doing and to get in touch with us if they want to volunteer because we can send them to the right person in the organization that's sponsoring us. And uh, generally, we just love the public to come and and see what we're doing and experience the kinds of sculptures that we think uh, can really enliven the imagination. Well, this has been great. Thank you very much for taking the time to talk with me. Yeah, thank you for asking us to come to Wilmington. Yeah, I apologize it didn't work out. It was a long-sorted story. Uh, yeah.